Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is episode 82, Electronic Health Records and Interchangeable Data. My guest, A.J. Holmgren, Ph.D., is an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at UC San Francisco and the Center for Clinical Informatics and Improvement Research and a senior advisor at the Stanford Clinical Excellence Research Center. He researches information technology and digital health and uses quantitative social science to understand how information technology affects patients, providers, and healthcare organizations. Dr. Holmgren received a master's degree in health informatics from the University of Michigan and a PhD in health policy from Harvard University. Dr. A.J. Holmgren, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Hello, and thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to this. So we're going to be discussing EHR systems, but I'd like to start with what is an EHR system? Sure. So an EHR stands for an electronic health record. They are basically the computer software that physicians, hospitals, and primary care practices across the country and across the world use to manage their data and facilitate the delivery of clinical care. That means that they use them to type up their notes and to input orders to tell nurses or other staff what medications to give a patient. Uh, They also use them to prescribe things directly to pharmacies. Electronic health records are absolutely pervasive in this country in how they interact with clinical care. They touch everything that a physician touches, and it is supposedly the gold standard of record keeping for all care every patient receives. I like that. Supposedly the gold standard. We may address that later on. (laughs) And what would it mean to be able to interchange data among EHR systems? Of course. So how it works now is that just about every different care delivery organization has its own EHR instance in the same way that other organizations have their own IT software. So UCSF, where I work, has a different system than Stanford down the peninsula, even though they're sort of supplied by the exact same vendor. Exchanging data across these different systems is often referred to as interoperability. And interoperability is a really simple concept. All of your medical data should be available to both the patient and a clinician treating the patient at the point of care, sort of regardless of where that data was generated. So, for example, if you're a patient and you go see a specialist, you'd really like them to be able to see what your primary care physician has written about you, the notes and your medical history, so that they know you as a patient as you meet a new doctor that you don't have a relationship with. Or if you show up unconscious in the emergency room, you'd really like the list of drugs that you're allergic to be accessible by the ER staff if you're in a position where you can't communicate that directly to them. 
And even more so if you're managing multiple chronic conditions or you have a really complex disease like cancer, you'd really like things like test results and your medications that you're currently on and ones you've been on in the past, your medical history and all of the different procedures you've had to be available across all of the different members of your care team because you're probably seeing a bunch of different doctors, probably at different organizations and in different locations. And so unless there's some sort of interoperability between these electronic health record systems, the burden falls on the patient to manage that all manually. So that's sort of the gist of interoperability. And I think from that, you get a really good sense of what the implications here are. And for patients, it can be really big. First, there's the overall cost aspect. There's a lot of duplicative care in the U.S. health system because it's incentivized financially. We're on the Medicare for All podcast. And so I think most people are aware that right now we have a fee-for-service healthcare system that pays for volume. So if you just got an MRI at the hospital down the street, your hospital's financial incentive is to say, well, we can't see that. Let's just redo it here. And you get charged for it and your insurance company pays and maybe you pay a copay or a co-insurance, but this type of duplicative testing adds up. It's not the reason that U.S. healthcare is uniquely expensive compared to our peer countries, but it is expensive and it is wasteful. And then there's also the sort of patient quality aspect. Sometimes we can't redo something. My earlier example about showing up in the ED and needing your allergies to show up with you so that you aren't given a drug that you'll have an adverse reaction to is really important. And then finally, and I think this is often under-discussed, is simply patient experience. We ask very sick patients to manage their own care in a really, really administratively difficult way when they're at some of the worst times in their life. If you are getting care from a bunch of different physicians and you're at a tough time and you're really sick, you really like everything to operate seamlessly in the background. But right now, without really robust interoperability, what we have is often patients are in charge of bringing all of their test results, all of their medication lists, all of their pill bottles to every doctor they see. They're getting faxes if they can even find a fax machine at their local Kinko's so their test results are there so they don't have to retake them. That patient experience is a really underemphasized aspect of the US healthcare system and interoperability as we exchange data across EHRs is really nice for patients if this can all follow them seamlessly rather than them having to just do one more thing at a time when they're already really struggling. Well, you anticipated my next question about how would HR systems that could exchange data help patients and physicians. Also though, how would it help researchers? Absolutely. I think you can see a lot of the times when research comes out of American academic medical systems, it is a trial run at one or maybe a partnership of a few health systems. Whereas, and a really good example here during COVID was that the UK was able to spin up a really, really robust clinical trial for a bunch of different COVID therapies because they had access to sort of seamless medical data transfers. And so the ability to aggregate information from a whole bunch of different unconnected organizations is really powerful. And the reason that we know this is that we have proof. 
So if you go look at the CDC's morbidity and mortality weekly reports and look at what the data source was, you'll find that many of them are now using Epic, which is the nation's largest electronic health record vendor. They have a data aggregation tool called Cosmos that aggregates patient clinical data, de-identifies everything, and allows the CDC to say, this is the number of patients who are hospitalized with COVID who are using Epic electronic health records. And the fact that we don't have a robust interoperability where we can easily aggregate that for the CDC to say, oh, here's everybody in the whole country. And the best they can do is simply go to the largest EHR vendor shows that we really need to move beyond siloed data sets from each academic medical center doing their own research and really unlock the power of aggregated national level data and sort of seamless interoperability is really necessary to be able to do that. So I think there's a big potential for, for research, for public health, for policymakers to be really maximally informed by some sort of data aggregation. One of the things you mentioned research in the UK, but I think I remember reading that a lot of the results and risk for the Pfizer vaccine came from Israel because Israel has a very good integrated healthcare system. And that data just helps to make decisions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, what we can learn from Israel is that it's not a technology issue. Much of, of what Israeli medicine is using similar or even the same electronic health record systems that the U.S. has but they've simply made an investment in interoperability between their acute care providers, like hospitals and primary care organizations, and their public health agencies. In the United States, the way that we digitized healthcare in this country uh, started in, in 2008 and 2009 from the Obama stimulus bill, or ARA, and it invested a ton of money, billions of dollars, to hospitals and physician offices to purchase these electronic health records. And it gave a little bit of money to other things, including public health agencies, but they really got a tiny share, a tiny sliver of the pie of that billions and billions of dollar program. And the result was at the beginning of COVID and this pandemic and public health emergency, we had hospital systems that were able to quickly aggregate and send off this data in electronic form. And many local and state level public health agencies who did not have the capacity to regularly receive electronic data. So it's not just hospital to hospital or physician to physician interoperability that we care about. We really care about being able to transfer this data to places like social services, public health agencies, the sorts of places that need to know what the health of a population looks like. I'm gonna get a little more granular. Recently, I got some blood work done and it was asked by one doctor, and the doctor got the results. My primary care physician went to the results, and that doctor said that they would fax them over. And I'm thinking, okay, you mean doctors have to fax this data? Which means it's faxed over, and then my primary care physician has to have somebody enter the data manually, which seems like a big waste of time. Exactly. And it really shows the tangled web of how data flows in the U.S. healthcare system. So between the lab and the first physician who ordered the test, we had good interoperability. The lab resulted, or excuse me, reported the results. 
electronically. And it probably showed up in the receiving physician's electronic health record in a nice structured machine readable format, probably filled in some fields automatically and would have generated an alert for the physician if any of the values were outside of some specified range, which is great. But then that data needed to go to a second location, and that's where the interoperability starts to fall apart. Unfortunately, whatever systems that those two physicians were in did not participate in some sort of network that they were able to exchange the data in. And so we rely on what is basically the old reliable, holding the entire US healthcare system together in the background, the fax machine. There are a lot of reasons why the fax machine is still more ubiquitous today than we would all like it to be. Some of them are very real. There are safety concerns around electronic data. Some of them are more perceived by organizations who are conservative and risk averse as healthcare delivery organizations often are. They would rather feel like they're relying on a technology they understand like facts and they are unlikely to sort of be sued for or have a data breach from compared to even using secure email. Uh, but I think it's important to know that this stuff happens all the time. And I think healthcare might be the only industry, to my knowledge, that still relies on fax machines for really sensitive, important data and for things that are really time sensitive. And then you're right, it just creates more work for someone in the receiving office to then enter that data back into an electronic health record. So without interoperability, we're relying on ancient technology and good old human hard work. And the other thing, when it's entered manually, there's more chance for error. Exactly right. So how come we don't have EHR systems that can exchange data now? An excellent question. Because when I look at this compared to, say, just about every other industry or system I interact with, I'm absolutely gobsmacked. My ATM card will work in an ATM in outer Mongolia. Now, it might charge me a fee. But I can take it pretty much anywhere in the world where there's ATMs and it'll work just fine and I can withdraw money. But I can't get my medical records from my primary care physician down the street to the hospital three blocks away. And the reason for that is sort of a combination of factors, as many complicated big problems are. And so policy-wise, historically, when we decided to digitize American healthcare, we took sort of an operate before we interoperate framework. To doing so, which meant that we defined what an electronic health record is, what features you had to have in order to sort of receive money from the federal government to purchase it. And then we would build these different things and then build the bridges across from them. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, that may have been a mistake, but it's not clear. And we're unable to sort of observe that counterfactual hypothetical world where we built this up. And I think they had good reasons for doing so. You know, at the time in 2008, the electronic health record market was pretty nascent. Things were pretty new. You don't want to stifle innovation by being too prescriptive as a government agency. So there are obviously trade-offs here. But it's important to remember that's sort of the framework we took when we decided to incentivize EHR adoption in the U.S. These days, though, it really boils down to two things. It is technically challenging and hard to do and it is not well incentivized to do so. And in fact, there are incentives against it. So on the first front, it is technically challenging. Healthcare is an incredibly complex enterprise, as I'm sure you and everyone who is listening are aware. 
the average inpatient electronic health record for one patient has something like 80,000 structured fields. That is a very complex piece of software. And so if you wanna exchange data with another electronic health record, and it has 80,000 structured fields, you need to write some sort of program or standard to allow those 80,000 fields in EHR1 to go to the exact right place in the 80,000 fields in EHR2. In this country, we also give physicians a lot of autonomy in how they practice, and that has manifested in how they document. So physician A might document the weight in a structured field, while physician B might just write it in the free text note. So now we have a ton of variation even amongst where unique data sources are within the same EHR. Now, none of this makes it impossible. We've done a lot of really great work, both in the federal government and in the private sector, on building standards, mandating a certain set of APIs, and all of the technical work that makes interoperability possible over the last few years, especially. But it does mean it's not easy to do. It requires you to have an IT staff. Those folks are expensive. And a lot of really smart computer people may not necessarily want to work at your hospital in rural Iowa because healthcare is local and you have to be there and you have to be on site and you have to have people there. And really talented IT professionals might want to live in San Francisco, in Silicon Valley, or in Boston instead. It also means it's really difficult to coordinate organizationally. A lot of how we have run interoperability have been what are essentially public utilities called health information exchange organizations that exist at the local, state, and national level that facilitate this data exchange. They act as brokers across different hospitals, health systems, and physician offices. So that means as a physician office, you need to sign up for all of these. You need to make sure that your system can connect to it. You need to set up contracts, data use agreements. There's just all of the legal requirements for sharing this data. And there's also, as many of you are likely aware, a lot of really strict rules in the United States about where private health information can and cannot be shared, and you need to make sure you're compliant with that. And then finally, it's really tough to integrate all of this data from disparate sources into clinician workflows so that the physician who is treating the patient just sees the data that's relevant, and is able to make decisions based off of it. But if you're bringing in outside data from hospital A and long-term care facility B and a specialty office C, how do you know when it's gonna be relevant and when it isn't? How are you able to bring that in in structured fields and make it easy? Physicians have very little time. You know, the average primary care appointment here is anywhere between 15 and 30 minutes and they don't have a lot of prep work in front of that. It is a really technically difficult challenge. And I do want to emphasize that, that this is not an easy switch to flip. However, that's not to say it's not overcomable, because it is. We could knock this out of the park if there was money in it. But right now, there's not. And a lot of this comes back down to fee-for-service, pay-for-volume healthcare. So a best analogy here is we don't really expect Amazon to share their customer data about what you're purchasing and what sort of things you like with Walmart because they're direct competitors. There's no reason for them to do so. That's similarly true of competing hospital systems in the same geography. If I'm Brigham and Women's Hospital, famously located in Boston, Massachusetts, and I have a patient who wants to go to Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center across the street, do I wanna make it easy for them? 
do I want to say, yeah, sure. Not only should it be really easy for you to go to a competitor, we'll share all of the data. We'll share all the work we already did for you and make it easier for them to treat you. Absolutely not. Now, obviously, hospitals, I do think we should give some credit, are much more pro-social than Amazon or Walmart. That said, I think it's unreasonable and unrealistic of us to assume that they are going to spend a ton of time and effort and money building a system that makes it easier for their patients to go somewhere else and receive care at a competitor. And I think it's just the fact of the matter is that is what interoperability does. And all of that duplicative spending I talk about that hurts patients and hurts taxpayers and hurts Medicare, well, that benefits the healthcare provider organization. If you can run that MRI again, well, then you're going to get paid again. And so there's no big incentive for hospitals, primary care organizations, physician offices to build these systems and to invest all this money. And in fact, there's an active disincentive to do so. So that's really what it comes down to. It's hard and it is no money in it. Well, you just made the case for one reason, have Medicare for all and have global budgets with, for hospitals with the Medicare for all. I don't want to discuss that now, though. We have made the EHR system sound great, just that they can't interchange data. A doctor posted this on Twitter. He said, complete the following sentence. I would rather, and there was a fill in the blank, then spend another minute inputting data into my ModMed, Cerner, or other company's EHR, which indicates that some doctors don't like that. And I've seen that sentiment expressed on Twitter. So why is it that some doctors don't like these systems? Yeah. And I think this goes far beyond uh, Twitter analysis to we have a lot of survey data that shows physicians feel often very dissatisfied with their electronic health record system. They feel like they spend a lot of time doing what is essentially data entry rather than spending time with patients or providing clinical care. And I think that's a very common sentiment and there's a few reasons for it. The biggest one is, as I said earlier, EHRs touch every aspect of healthcare delivery, which means everything sort of feeds into them and feeds from them. So when we talk about care delivery, that sort of runs from the EHR. When we talk about billing, that also runs from the EHR. When we talk about research or quality improvement or some sort of administrative program that the hospital wants to run, all of the data that fuel those programs, that fuel those peer-reviewed studies and those quality programs and the minimum required quality metrics for whatever national quality program that you're participating in, all come from the electronic health record. But where does that data come from? That comes from doctors writing notes and nurses filling out flow sheets and medical assistants inputting patient information. That's all human labor. Now we talked about a little earlier that the EHR is the gold standard of all care that was delivered. And I don't think that's totally true, but it's much more true than it was in the paper era. So having a digitized system has allowed us to do so many more things with our healthcare data that were totally impossible when physicians just wrote things down in paper charts, because at that point, doing some sort of aggregation or study or quality improvement was nearly impossible and required hundreds of man hours to do. These days, it's really easy to do, but the work falls on the physician who needs to input all of this accurate data about exactly what happened beforehand. 
And there are a lot of masters of that data who want something. There's clinical care, that's the obvious one. The next doctor should know what you did and what they need to know about that patient. And then there's billing. And billing is really important in the United States. And as a fee-for-service billing system, we need to be able to justify each and every different billing and billing code that's attached to that patient and that encounter. And we have this awkward multi-payer billing system here in the U.S. And so an insurance company might want to deny claims sometimes if there's not a sufficient reason to do so. And every insurance company has different preferences about what claims they do and don't want to deny and how much documentation they do or do not require. And physicians often don't know what insurance company or what insurer their patient has. So they're pretty much incentivized to document maximally to the preferences of the most restrictive, most denial-filled insurer that's out there. And so they really over-document for billing purposes and also for legal purposes, for the, the purpose of, of avoiding potential malpractice suits. And they over-document because they don't want to be yelled at by their hospital administrator who says, hey, you need to make sure you write down this field because we're running a quality program on you know, HbA1c this year, and we need to make sure we've got everybody's documented. And you know, there are all these different masters of, of this data, and it's really fallen on physicians to input this data. Uh, and that's just a big difference from paper-based charts where, since these programs were basically impossible, uh, physicians really just charted what they felt was necessary for clinical care. Well, that brings up, well, two points. One, I've heard doctors complain that there's just so much data in these systems that sometimes if you get a report, it's hard to find the necessary information. And the other problem is that the systems are geared to maximize billing and not for patient care. So what would you say to both those criticisms? Yeah, I think both are true. I think the first point is just almost intrinsic to the nature of healthcare. So if you show up in a hospital for some type of acute issue, you might have a laundry list of medical data going back to your birth. The vast, vast majority of it is completely irrelevant to the physician currently treating you. Now, there might be one thing, one buried nugget of information that might, you know, inform some sort of medical decision-making or diagnostic skills. But for the most part, you know, if you show up with a broken arm, what does your medical history have to do with it? And so there is a sense of information overload. And this is an area that I don't think is anyone's fault. And I do think there is a technological solution to, you know, we should be able to start taking all this digitized data and training artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms to identify what's important and pull it to the forefront. Now that's some optimism there on the technology front. And I'll balance that with a little bit of pessimism about whether electronic health records are for clinical care or for billing. And the answer is it's for both. And using one system to support two incredibly different business processes, providing the care and then billing for the care is always going to make it inefficient. That's just the fact of life. You know, think about how many systems you use in your everyday life that try to do too many things. And they end up just being useless. You know, IT exists to support business processes. And unfortunately, right now in this country and in many other countries, honestly, we have systems that are sort of running in parallel 
but the US just has one of the most complex billing systems. And so because of its complexity, it is oftentimes, um, we are relying on more data from the EHR, which requires physicians to input more data to the EHR, which buries the clinical care data below piles and piles of text that is meant for billing or administrative or legal purposes. You'll hear physicians complain about dot phrases or smart phrases. And that is basically little shortcuts that they set up for their notes to fill out all of this pre-templated information. And it's all in this jargon and mumbo jumbo for legal and for billing. And it reminds them where to put things. And you have to think, this is just not a useful way to structure anything. And it just shows how much filler is in there. And if you're trying to read one of these notes, there's all of this stuff going on that's really just templated out of the can in every single note. You know, it doesn't read well. It doesn't flow well. If you're trying to identify a few key pieces of information, it just gets in the way. But it's the vast majority of clinical notes. You know, some research we've done shows about 70% or so of the text in those notes is either copy and pasted or some sort of templated canned text. And only 30% was actually typed in. I'd like to ask you about a real world example in that the VA had a very good homegrown EHR system. And of course, they weren't concerned with billing so much. And it was working fine. And I'm not sure why, but somebody decided that that should be replaced with a, a private EHR system. And the cost was originally estimated at about $16 billion over 10 years. And now the estimate is almost $51 billion over 29 years. And do you know why they decided to go away from the homegrown system? Was there any good reason to replace the VA's homegrown system with the private system? So I think it's a complicated question. And I think, you know, the, the first case answer there is there was some reasons, yes. And those reasons are mostly technical. It is an aging system. It was written decades ago at this point. We are quickly running out of programmers who are able to write fluently in older system code. And there were some things that it could not do and investing in modernizing it may have been even more expensive. But those are sort of administrative governance related issues. And I think where you see failures coming in and why this project has exploded in timeline and costs is that those reasons do not resonate with the user base because a user base of VA physicians who in general found Vista and CPRS, their existing electronic health record system, pretty good for taking care of patients, you really need to sell them on, well, this will be better for some reason. And instead, that was really never communicated. Now, Enterprise software system, you know, switches are really complex. These are massive undertakings that require the organization to go full buy-in for the entire time. And it's even harder in healthcare, which is notoriously change-resistant, notoriously complicated. And so I think the, the reasons for the, the various difficulties that the VA has been having are somewhat on sort of the, the governance and management aspect of the organization. But I think really the key failure there is convincing the physician base that this was going to be better because I don't think they had a really strong argument that it was going to be better. I think they had a really strong argument that long-term for the future, this may be necessary, but that's a tough sell to a doctor who just wants to take care of their patient the best they can. 
And the existing electronic health record system was pretty darn good at that. I actually worked a few decades as a database administrator. I upgraded enterprise systems and it's a pain in the butt. I don't know if people who aren't in programming will get this joke, but do you know why God was able to create the world in six days? Because God didn't have an installed user base. That's exactly right. Anytime you're doing this sort of big enterprise software transition, you know, for a lot of companies, they can just say, we're doing Salesforce now, everybody get on board and any malcontents are out. But healthcare doesn't work that way. Physicians have a lot of power over where they work. They have a lot of autonomy and a big voice in sort of the national media. So when things are annoying, things are bad, things aren't going well, we all find out really quickly. And so it's a, it's a lot harder as an organization. It's much more important that you get user buy-in. Uh, and it's a lot harder to say, well, if you don't like it, you know, it's my way or the highway. A hypothetical question. Could the VA's VISTA EHR system have been used as a model for a standardized EHR system? Yeah, and I think, you know, it's interesting because the VISTA system was open source and available to other organizations. So they could have, in a revealed preference, picked it up and used it. But I think it unfortunately just didn't serve all of the masters that the average academic medical center or integrated delivery network, your UCSFs and Kaisers and Brigham and Women's Hospitals of the world need. And a big part of that is billing. I'm not a hospital administrator that I'm not necessarily privy to the, the electronic health record vendor choice decisions of the world. Um, not quite at that level yet. I'm a researcher, but I think it, it's very clear that from the revealed preferences of organizations, there was something that was lacking in VISTA that sort of drove that decision. And I don't think it was physician satisfaction or user preferences because VISTA was frequently ranked the best electronic health record when you surveyed physicians over the past two decades or so. So I think that is, that is on the administrative and uh, leadership side that shows not to go with, with VISTA. One of the things you mentioned earlier was that one hospital doesn't want to share their patient data with another hospital because, as you put it, it's their customer base. And one of the things I mentioned is that, well, if we had Medicare for all with global budgets for hospitals, that would be less of an issue. And I've discussed global budgets before, but basically just so people know, I know you know, but you take away the fee for service and you just tell a hospital, okay, how much money do you need to run your operation? And we'll just give you this one budget and you don't have to do all this fee for service billing. But that brings up an interesting question. How do you think a single payer healthcare system would aid in the development and acceptance of EHR systems that could exchange data? Yeah, I think the devil is in the details of this one. Now, when you say Medicare for all, if you were to just say, let's rip out the entire private insurance industry and give everyone our current iteration of fee-for-service Medicare, it might not do that much because we're still working in a fee-for-service volume-based healthcare. When you say global budgets, now you're starting to get more into a world where interoperability might matter. But on the other hand, 
you know, interoperability matters in a way that makes organizations a little uncomfortable. They don't really totally control what's going on there. And so when we've seen things where we put risk contracts into hospitals, whether that's through accountable care organizations like ACOs or some sort of global budgeting system, like the, the bundled payment system that the federal government's done through Medicare, where we see organizations making changes and who they refer to and sort of the low-hanging fruit of pricing and utilization. Interoperability is usually pretty low on the list. So I think a single-payer system makes everything easier from a policy standpoint, because now you've got some administrative levers from the payer to say, all right, everybody's got to do this now. Uh, and I think that is where we'd really get a lot of juice out of switching from our current multi-payer complex Byzantine system to a more streamlined system is that not only could a full Medicare for all say, all right, we're doing global budgets now, it could also more easily say, and also you all need to attest to this level of interoperability. Otherwise you're going to sort of receive a lower global budget or there'll be some sort of penalty for that. And that makes it easier. And, you know, that's, that's also possible in the current world. It's just more difficult. So I want to say, you know, for many reasons, I, I'm generally pro Medicare for all. I don't think it would immediately solve the interoperability issue. And I think actually the, most of the research that we've done more recently has shown, I think being more prescriptive and mandating, you have to have APIs that can exchange data. Your patients have to have no cost access to their electronic data at the point of care. You have to release that data to whoever is able to access it to other treating clinicians, regardless, you're unable to sort of block it on competitive grounds. And so we've made some progress in that in the existing system. Would it have more teeth if we had a single pair and said, okay, everyone's going to really suffer if they break these rules? I think yes, but that would depend on exactly how those policies are written. Well, I do agree it won't solve the problem of interoperability immediately, but one thing it would do, right now we have, you know, each insurance company has a different system about how they get paid and it can vary within plans, even within an insurance company. One thing that a single payer system would do is it would standardize the billing. So basically you would have one system of billing. And I think that alone would make it much easier to create interoperability. And it certainly would reduce administrative costs in terms of billing costs. I think that's definitely true. Being able to sort of link electronic health record clinical data with billing data from a single payer across the entire nation would be a really powerful way to generate fantastic data sets for research, for public health and population health measurement in ways that we really cannot do right now. And I think in terms of the administrative costs, you're totally right. We could ideally simplify our billing systems greatly and reduce that friction that physicians feel as they have to enter all of this data. Now, of course, once again, that doesn't happen automatically. CMS actually mandated, I think, a really admirable change on their part at the beginning of 2021. They said, okay, the most common office visit is an evaluation and management or an ENM code. And you know, we've got all of this sort of physicians' complaints about having to document too much. Let's reduce the required documentation for ENM codes for everybody, not just Medicare and Medicaid, but for every, it applies to every private insurer. And the early research has come out and shown it didn't really change anything. 
So that's another thing that I think is, is tough. And I think single payer helps with this, but doesn't get us all the way, which is that medical culture is really deeply ingrained. You know, you are trained in a certain way as a physician and you tend to sort of practice that way for the rest of your career. And that includes documentation. So it's not just, well, let's reduce the amount of required documentation. It's we got to reduce the amount of required documentation and then do all of the change management and organizational outreach to say, here is what, how you should be documenting now. It is easier to do it this way because it is a break. You know, people use their systems how they use them. They have these shortcuts that work and these workarounds, and it's, it's an investment on their time. They'll probably be less productive for a little while as they change, but it is, you know, you have to also pair those policy changes with the organizational outreach in order to make it really work. Well, that's certainly true. And even if you go to a system that's much better, people are still going to have problems with it when it changes the system that they're used to. Absolutely. I know that from personal experience when I was working in information technology. Right. And I never mean to say that's not a reason to not do it, but it is something to think about as we think about what a transition would look like or an implementation of the policy. And you would need to have, you know, you would need to educate, you need to explain it, depending on how complicated it is, you would need to have, you know, ideally, you should have training sessions that teaches people how to use the new system. And what's also important is to have a very good help system so that if they need to call somebody, they can to get the answers. Yeah, there's been some really great examples of doing the change management of electronic health records well, mostly from the integrated delivery systems of the world. But it's really, you know, getting physician buy-in, generating a base of super users who know what they're doing, are really on board with the entire process. They're your technology people who are also physicians who are on the ground and can answer questions. Because when you're a busy person, when you're a busy physician saying, oh, how do I input this order this way? You don't have 20 minutes to sit on a help desk tall. You just need to ask the person next to you, hey, how do I do this? And that's really the secret sauce of getting a lot of these transitions as smooth as they can go, which is really investing in that sort of organizational change management and user-based buy-in. Well, I would just like to make a point. This is simple in concept, but it's complex to execute. But even if something is simple, it doesn't mean that it's easy. And the example I like to give, it's simple to run a marathon, but it's not easy. You're exactly right. And it's easy for us to sit here and talk about what the ideal situation would look like. But then you get in the actual implementation and it's months and months of work from hundreds of people. And if it goes as best as it possibly could have, no one will even recognize how hard it was. Uh, and I think that's, that's true of a lot of IT implementations. Uh, and I think a lot of people deserve a lot of credit at, at hospitals and healthcare organizations around this country for keeping things moving as, as well as it does. Uh, as much as we like to point out the problems, sometimes it's shocking that things work at all. Before we end, is there anything that you would like to add? Yeah, and that is, I am optimistic about both interoperability and the future of electronic health records. At this point, we have basically just digitized our paper-based workflows. And that's it. That's where we are right now. But now that we have all of this data digitized, there are so many things we can do with it. 
here at the University of California, we've got this big clinical data warehouse repository where now we can aggregate patient data across all of the UC health systems. We're treating a huge proportion of the population of California, and now researchers can access this sort of cross-institutional data. I think that's really exciting and really important to say, okay, I know things start to feel rough right now on the physician side, on the user side, but there is a reason we're doing this. And I do think the exciting things are coming soon. And I also want to give a lot of credit to our federal agencies, the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT and the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. They've been really proactive about interoperability. There are a lot of new rules coming out saying patients need to have all access to their data, all of their clinical notes, all of their test results immediately. There are a lot of rules saying you cannot block information sharing to other hospitals and other care delivery organizations. And so in that way, I do think, you know, they recognize it's a problem and they are making proactive steps to make things better. And we've seen it in the data. We've seen a continual uptick of organizations sharing data. And I think we're at an inflection point where we've really hit a lot of the lows and the highs are coming. I certainly hope that's true. AJ, thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Remember to tell your family, friends, and colleagues about this podcast. Information about Medicare for All Explained can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.